0: What I want you to do is to turn in your Bible to the book of Ezra. Find 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Just go to the right of that and you find Ezra. And we're going to go to chapter 8. Uh, This is a good guy. This guy does not get enough ink. He does not get enough recognition. Um, Ezra lived at the time of the return from exile in Babylon. And he was a principal figure in the, the return of the remnant of Israel back to Jerusalem. Uh, he was a principal figure in getting them oriented properly before, um, as they were returning. If you look at chapter 8, um, starting in... Let's see, where are we at here? Let's go back to chapter 7. Chapter 7, starting in verse 11. King Artaxerxes, over there in Babylon and all that area, he writes a decree. And in this decree, this decree was written on behalf of Ezra. This is chartering Israel with the task of returning to the promised land. And you see in verse 25 what King Artaxerxes says to Ezra. He says, you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God, which is in your hand, you appoint magistrates and judges that they may judge all the people who are in the province beyond the river, dot, dot, dot. So the king is, is putting Ezra in a prominent position. Um, Ezra is in charge of the group of people who are returning uh, to Israel. You go down to chapter 8, drop down to verse 15. Ezra has staged everybody um, in a particular area before they leave, and he's doing that because he wants to observe the people and the priests, and he's looking for Levites and some other things. In verse twenty-one, he shows more about his leadership. He proclaims a fast. He's clearly in charge here. He is—he is in charge. He is doing lots and lots of good things. He's a humble man. In, in verse twenty-two, he he doesn't want to ask the king for help, but he he knows what they should do. Um, and then when you read verses uh, chapters nine and ten, <coughs> you see that Ezra is clearly a spiritual leader in Israel. At the return, there's there's mixed marriages, there's questions about that, and and there's everything. And and Ezra is leading Israel. He's leading them, he's providing sound wisdom and advice and understanding. Um, Why am I saying all of that? I'm saying all of that because um, there's something very important in the book of Ezra that actually is a a standard, it's a template for us, for the model we need to follow as men. So to see that, back up to chapter 7 and verse 10. And you see how it is that, that Ezra came to be the kind of man that he is. Uh, Ezra, again, is there. And um, chapter 10 tells us Ezra did three things. I want us to recognize what those three things are. And I want us to notice the order in which they occur. Okay, Ezra had set his heart to do three things. He sets his heart, so he sets all of himself in this. The heart means The totality of who you are, it's everything about you, it's about you in your totality. This is what he did in his totality. He set his heart to, one, study the law of the Lord, study the law of Yahweh, and two, to practice it, and three, to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. So you see study, and you see practice, and then you see teaching. Now, the study there is he's not just memorizing the Torah. He is meeting with God over the written word, and he is worshiping God through his interaction, through his study. He is learning a lot about God. As you read this book, you find out that this is a very godly man. This book is not just information to Ezra as he's reading the Holy Scriptures, as he's studying them. He is So he is meeting with the Lord. That is discipline one. That is taking care of your heart, okay? So Ezra takes care of his heart first. The <coughs> second thing he does is he practices the law. And the idea there is a smaller context. It's not Ezra practicing the law in front of all of Israel. It's a smaller context. It's probably more related to his household or his nearest um, fellows that he's, he's with, that he knows. And so that would be his household. So you have his heart, and then you have his household and then you see what he does. Lastly, you see that he teaches. He teaches those statutes that he's, he's hidden in his heart and that he's practiced. He teaches them to Israel, in Israel. And so that's his ministry. So What you see here is the right order for us to do things. Ezra is not a dangerous man. Ezra is a safe man to follow. And the reason why is because he cares for his heart first in studying the word. And then he actually practices it, so he's imitatable and he's a followable man. And then he teaches what he practices. So when you're when you're listening to Ezra teach, all the Old Testament Jews are listening to Ezra (laughs) doing his teaching. Uh, They know they're listening to a man they can trust and they can follow. Not only is the word accurate that he's (laughs) teaching, but he's a man who practices it himself, so they can follow him. That's what we want to do here at Grace. We want guys to be taking care of their heart studying the word, reading the word, going through the word in some order. We want them to be practicing that in their context of their their living situation and their household. And then we want them to be out of the fruit of that, to be entering into ministry of some kind, whatever it looks like. (coughs) So that is the template for us. That's why we we have the things ordered the way we do here at Grace Blackwood Church So if you ever wanted to know, hey, how did we get that? We got that from, one of the places we got that was from Ezra chapter 7. And the result of that is that he was a very, very fruitful man. Here he is, he's taking the the returning people back to Israel so they can begin to worship again the way that God intended them to worship. And he's going to help them set up the temple and help establish the worship practice because he understands it, he knows what it is. Most of the people that came back had no idea he had to teach them. And yeah, so he had a very prominent, fruitful role, but it started with his heart shepherding. Okay?
1: We're on to a Discipline 3, the ministry. Is this the first one this year? Great. Okay. So as you know, there's um, a, a priority in these spiritual disciplines. You have to discipline yourself to shepherd your heart well. You don't just wake up and automatically do that. You don't just find yourself throughout the day... Um, Just reflexively leading your heart to the Lord in his word. Um, If you do, please come talk to me because I want to know you. (laughs) And I want to spend more time with you. Um, You have to control yourself. You have to discipline yourself for your heart's sake. You then also have to step into your household and be self-controlled there. You know that. Um, And you also have to control yourself and discipline yourself in ministry. Uh, These are not sequential strictly such that you treat them like first, second, and third grade. Once you're done with first grade, you never want to go back and do it again, although first grade for some of us is probably the best two years of our lives. Um, (laughs) But there's priority, right? Um, You put a priority on your heart, then you put a priority on your household, and then you put a priority on ministry. You don't get a luxury um, often of being able to deal with them that way. They'll just come at you. Ministry challenge will come to you, and whether or not you did a good job with your heart or your home that day, you just deal with what God gives to you. But in your mind, you prioritize Um, my heart. Because if you are shepherding your heart well with the Word of God, and I want to go all over this again. I know Scott um, gave you something to think about this morning. But if you shepherd your heart well, you have something to offer your family. Mm -hmm. You have something to say to people when you are ministering to them. If you don't prioritize that, your ministry will be a shell. And you don't want that. And we're going to look at probably uh, two of the best chapters in all of the Bible about um, what gospel ministry looks like. Now, let me give you a little backup. We're going to go um, to uh, back to actually Acts chapter 16 because I want you to kind of get the feel for what's going on the end of Acts 16. So you can turn back there for a moment. This is Paul's second missionary journey. Um, He uh, has made his way to Thessalonica, we'll see here in just a moment. And his interaction with them, his relationship with them, was established on his second missionary journey about A.D. 50. Okay, A.D. 50. Um, He has, in Acts chapter 16, he's been in Philippi. You remember the story. Um, he He and Silas get arrested. They get beaten with rods. They get thrown into jail all without any kind of due process. They don't even realize that they are Roman citizens. And when Romans do that to Romans, um, a, a privileged colony like Philippi can lose their status in the empire. And they lose everything if that happens. And so uh, you know what happens. Paul says, well, hey, you, you come take us out of prison. You, you know what you did. And at the end of chapter 16, verse 39, he says, There, that they came and appealed to Paul and Silas. And when they had brought them out of prison, they kept begging them to leave the city. Just get out of here. We don't want to deal with this. They went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, which was the first convert in Philippi. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Okay, so think about this. Paul has been with um, the Philippians there. Um, They saw him, uh, they believed Christ. They saw Paul get beaten and arrested without any due process. And they're thinking, okay, this is the guy who led us to Christ. And look what happened to him. What do we do? So Paul, one last time with them, sits in the house, and he exhorts them, and he leaves town. Okay? Now, um, look at chapter 17. When they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. The way that it's written there, it's, it's believed that um, it's a three-day journey for Paul. It's about 100 miles from Philippi down to Thessalonica. They think that um, the way that Paul wrote it here, his first stop was Amphipolis, his second stop was Apollonia, and then he finally made it to Thessalonica. It's about a, almost equal thirds in terms of dividing up that 100 miles. And so about a three-day journey of 100 miles, most likely, if, it, if that is the case, Paul and Silas are on horseback moving from Philippi down to Thessalonica. Remember, they've just been beaten with rods. They're not going to be walk, They're going to be slow. Perhaps they provided horses for them to get where they're going. Um, so they make it down to Thessalonica. Um, verse 2, and according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them, or I'm sorry, back in verse one, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them into that synagogue for three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence from the Messiah that the Messiah had to suffer and rise again from the dead saying this Jesus, I am proclaiming to you. He's the Messiah. So he's His custom was to go into a city, to go to the Jews first before he went to the Greeks. He goes into the synagogue. He reasons with them. He opens up the Old Testament, and he says, this is what the Old Testament says about Messiah. I want to tell you his name. It's Jesus of Nazareth. And so he made an equal sign between the Old Testament teachings and Jesus. That's what he did. He did this for three Sabbaths, it says. Many conclude that... um, That means that Paul was with them for only three weeks. That's possible before he was run out of town. That is possible. Um, We'll we'll talk about um, why it might be a little longer. In fact, maybe I'll just do that now. Um, Keep your finger in Acts 16, but go to the end of Philippians. Go to Philippians chapter 4. Paul, about 10 years later, will be in prison in Rome, and he will write this letter to the Philippians from jail. And he will reflect back on this time in Acts 17. Okay? Philippians 4, verse 15. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, which is when he left Philippi and made his way down towards Thessalonica, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. In other words, I left you. And Paul had a very special relationship with the church in Philippi. Unlike any other church, um, they they supported him throughout all of his ministry, all of the time. He was constantly taken care of by them. He he formed a special bond with that church. And he says, when I left you, nobody shared in my needs except you guys. Look at verse sixteen. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Now, go back to Acts 17 and let's just think about this. A three day horse ride from Philippi to Thessalonica. Okay? That's fast. That's the fastest you could get there. Okay? So if Paul is in Thessalonica and he has a need, what does he have to do if the Philippians are going to get it? He has to send to them. So, best case scenario, put them on a horse, send them. Three days there. A day turnaround, day four. Three days back. Seven days. So a week is gone. One of those weeks is gone. And then he has to run out of all that they supplied. And then he has to say, I I have need again. I need to go back. And so he has to send it back. It's possible that all of that happened more than once uh, within three Sabbaths. It might be that what luke is recording in acts is just that it was specifically a three sabbath reasoning process that he went on with them and there was more time with them the point is regardless whether it was three weeks or whether it was five he was only with them for about a month maybe a little more maybe a little less and so back in acts chapter 17 he reasoned with them and it says in verse 4 and some of them who are the sum of them It's the Jews in the synagogue. Some of the Jews in the synagogue were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas. Now watch this. Along with, not some, but a large number of God-fearing Greeks. So in the synagogue there were Jews and in the synagogue there were proselytes, Gentiles, who had decided they were going to follow the Yahweh of the Old Testament. So... Some of the Jews were persuaded, but a large number of Greeks followed, along with, also, verse 4, a number of the leading women. Verse 5, but in contrast to that, the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some of the wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. Now, so now think about this. Some of the Jews... A lot of the Greeks in the synagogue, in the Jews' synagogue, a lot of the Greeks and the leading women follow Paul, but the rest of the Jews who didn't repent see that, that they've lost their synagogue, and what do they do? God's people, the Jews, in Thessalonica, what do they do? They got jealous, and they went for some wicked men in the city. These are the Jews. This is the, condition, the spiritual condition of the Jews in Thessalonica. They take some wicked men from the marketplace, they form a mob, and they turn the city upside down. Mm -hmm. That's the condition of the Jews in Thessalonica who do not repent. That's the condition of the Jews before Paul got there. And they went to the house of Jason, assuming that he, Paul and Silas would be there and Timothy. They were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, Mm -hmm. shouting, Okay, so full stop. The ones that Paul is writing to in 1 Thessalonians are these people. Some of them were dragged before the city authorities. Jason was one of them. Okay, And they said, these men who have upset the world have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar. All of a sudden now the Jews are the biggest fans of Caesar. Saying that there's another king, Jesus. There is um, a rebellion going on. Paul's leading it. And these young believers, three weeks, five weeks, four weeks, more or less, are now um, in the middle of an upward. Their city has been turned upside down and is all looking at them, okay? Verse 8, they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things, and when they received a pledge from Jason and others, they released them. Basically, they said, give us some money and we'll look the other way, and they did, verse 10, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. They left three weeks, five weeks, no getting to go back to the house of Jason like he did with Lydia in Philippi and instruct them. Hey, let me just explain to you what happened. Didn't get that opportunity. He just had to leave. And that impacted Paul. And he He went down to Athens, we know, in Acts chapter 17. And from Athens, he writes this letter back to the Thessalonians. So go back to 1 Thessalonians now. See, it's so important to understand what's going on. These aren't just words on a page. They're not disconnected from some kind of a reality, a history. And it matters what happened and how they were written and when they were written. So what is Paul concerned about? The last he saw or the last he heard of them, some of them were dragged before the city authorities. Um, They were under threat from the Romans in Thessalonica. So he is concerned that persecution had some kind of an adverse effect on them. What were they thinking? He had so little time with them to establish them in the gospel. What did they think about persecution that resulted from believing Jesus? Well, he tells us, actually, in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 17. Let's look at that. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time, uh, for a short while, in person, not in spirit... We were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. So once he got down to wherever he was in in, in Athens and traveling away, he kept wanting to get back to them, but he couldn't. For who is our hope or joy or crown or exaltation? is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming for you are our glory and joy. Therefore, chapter 3, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind in Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. Which afflictions? The ones they saw. The ones that when they were afflicted in persecution and drug before the city authorities. You yourselves know that we have been destined for this kind of treatment, verse four. Indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know, of course they knew, they saw it all happen right in front of their eyes. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, what impact did it have on Paul? It drove him crazy. When I couldn't stand it any longer, I sent to find out about your faith because he was afraid of something. What? For fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. That I I preached to you the gospel, but the persecution caused you to flee and my, my labors in your life would have been a waste of time. But then he finds out that that is not the case and so forth with the letter. So that's the background for the letter. Paul is concerned to make sure that they understand what persecution's part is in being a believer. And he's going to go after it in chapters 1 and 2 in a very interesting way in in establishing them. What he's going to draw attention to is primarily his own life and his own example. He's not going to lay out a a doctrinal position on the gospel he's going to instead point them to the way he was with them, the kind of man that he was with them. He's concerned to remind them of the kind of gospel ministry that they observed in Paul, that they experienced through Paul, that came from Paul. And chapters 1 and 2 becomes very autobiographical. It's, It's one of the most autobiographical portions in your New Testament, like 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, where Paul is having to defend himself all the time. So, What God did for us in this part of the Bible, what he wants for you is is he preserved um, a description of what gospel ministry should look like, exemplified in the life of Paul. That's what he wanted to put in his Bible. That's what you and I get, and this is what we bring our hearts to. And it's a great place for us to come and look and see what gospel ministry is supposed to look like. It's a vivid description of what gospel ministry looks like. Gospel ministry that was very effective in the face of persecution. Okay? Very effective in the salvation of souls and the building of believers in the face of persecution. So now, we have been in a lot of places. Now I'm going to read chapters 1 and most of chapter 2. Okay? We'll just take it all in one piece, and then we'll see how far we get today. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ... Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also it came in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Now, as I I read, look for those kinds of sentences, those kinds of statements. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you, and you'll see the emphasis he's putting on it. You, verse 6, also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us, What kind of a reception we had with you. There it is again. The the way that we interacted together. And and they reported about how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, and, and you understand that connection now, right? As you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men but pleasing God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you. As a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly We behave toward you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So there's the autobiographical section we'll take a look at. This morning I'm going to give you 11 descriptions to soak in so that you can think rightly about your own gospel ministry, what it must look like. Um, you want your gospel ministry to t- uh, trend in this direction towards the way that Paul was, okay? Uh, this is what you need to discipline and control yourself for so that your gospel ministry looks this way. I'm going to guess we're not going to get through all 11, okay? But we're going to start. And the first one is probably one of the most profound because this is why we are still here. Gospel ministry, number one, reveals. God's electing love. that's what he says. okay verse four he's praying verse two to four and he's praying knowing something, knowing brethren this is what I know brethren blood by God. what do you know Paul? His choice of you you are his sovereign choice. Paul gives thanks. And the ground for his thankfulness is that he knows that they are beloved by God and they are chosen by him. Paul knows God's sovereign electing love of the Thessalonian believers. And you say, well, how does he know it? Well, he tells us, he explains verse 5. How does he know they've been chosen by God? For, now watch this and stick with me on this because it takes a little bit to, to work through the pieces. Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and in full conviction or with full conviction. Paul's answer here is not primarily a theological one. Well, here's how I know that God sovereignly elected you. It's because of these other doctrinal considerations. Paul says that actually... How the gospel came to them is how he knows that they were chosen by God. The manner in which the gospel came to them when he was with them is how he knows they are chosen of God. God's choice was revealed through how his gospel ministry displayed itself while he was among them. Verse 5, you know, um, we know, His choice of you, because for our gospel did not come to you in words only, but even beyond words, the gospel came, ministry came in power and in the Holy Spirit and in full conviction. Now listen, all it takes is to read through Acts, and you know that Paul never went someplace without preaching words. But he says, it did not come in words only to you, but the gospel came in power and with the Holy Spirit And with full conviction. When did Paul ever carry out gospel ministry and not use words? But what Paul is trying to emphasize here is that his gospel came to them not only in words, but it also came in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. What does that statement mean? Your first thought is probably well, of course, the gospel is the power of God, and the Holy Spirit loves to use the gospel. And the gospel brings full conviction of sin. And you would be theologically absolutely correct. The question is, is that what Paul is saying here? Look at the next statement that follows it. Okay, so here it is. Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as, now I'm going to explain what I mean by what I just said. Just as what? You know what kind of men we were We proved to be among you for your sake. So wait a minute. It came in power, it came with the Holy Spirit, and it came with full of conviction. You know what kind of men we were. That's what he says, And that's profound. The kind of men we were while we were among you, the kind of gospel ministry that came forth from us while we were with you, I know you're chosen, of God because it was a ministry of power, it was a ministry full of the Holy Spirit, and we were men fully convinced by what God was doing through his gospel to save sinners. Of course. I know you're his chosen ones. They were men with a gospel. Listen, the the gospel is the power of God for salvation, and Paul's not taking away anything from that. He's adding to that a gospel full of power came to them, but that gospel power came through men of power, came through men of the Holy Spirit, and came from men who were fully convinced that they had to bring that gospel. Of course Paul knew that they were chosen when they believed. Does the gospel itself have power? Yes. Does the Holy Spirit love to use the gospel? Yes. Does the gospel bring conviction of sin? Yes. That's just not what Paul's saying here. Do you understand? So Paul's whole point here is about how he knows they are chosen of God. When there is gospel ministry like this going on, a ministry of power, a ministry of full of the Holy Spirit, a a ministry, uh, um, people full of conviction bringing this gospel, God shines his light on his elect, and they believe. Uh, Just think of the stark contrast. Think of a gospel ministry that relies only on human power. Think of a gospel ministry, quote, unquote, um, driven by human cleverness. Think of a gospel ministry carried out with self-confidence. It's difficult to expect to see the salvation of sinners in that. Right? Where gospel servants, gospel ministry goes out with words of the gospel, but not just with words only, but with power and with the Holy Spirit And with full conviction, God loves to reveal his elect. His saving love for sinners through those kinds of gospel servants. Listen, let's say it this way. Let's give it its proper weight. Let's not pretend that all you need to do is just set the power of the gospel before people and it doesn't matter what you are. Mm. Okay. it matters the kind of men that we are supposed to be it does now let's balance it the other way you can be a a godly man you can be a great man you can be a, a loving man but if you don't have the words of the gospel so what but what is Paul saying here He's putting a lot of emphasis on the kind of gospel servants and gospel ministry that they saw. What, what, think of it this way. What is required by God to save his elect? His elect are dead in their trespasses and sins. They are children of wrath among the sons of disobedience. Ephesians 2, right? What does it take for God to do that? Well, obviously it takes the power of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes. But Paul is adding to this saying, it also comes, that gospel of power comes in a ministry that is marked by divine power. What power do you want to rely on in gospel ministry? It comes in a ministry that's marked by the Holy Spirit. Do you want your markings on it? And it comes from men who are fully convinced that this is the only way sinners are going to be saved. Kind of men we are matters. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you, Paul says. Gospel ministry needs to be marked by power, His Spirit, and full conviction. That's what it takes for God to overcome the spiritual deadness of His elect with the power of the gospel. Guys, you need a power within you that is far beyond your own resources. I mean, let's just get practical here. You're shepherding a child. You're bringing your gospel ministry to your child. You need much more than your power. And you need the Holy Spirit. And, and you need to be a man fully convinced that this is the only thing that is going to make any difference in your child. If you're not sure about that, if you got doubts about whether this is really the... I mean... You need to get convinced of that. You step into next generation of ministries. I serve in this room here. I sit at a table over here with some of the best six- and seven-year-old boys around. Some of your kids are at that table. Um, whatever it is you do, wherever you serve, in small group, as you get to small group, and you're going to care for people, um, you need a power that is not your own, and, and you need the Holy Spirit to be present in you and full in His fullness there. And you need to be fully convinced that there's only one message that matters to us. The kind of men you prove to be among them matters. Do you understand what He's saying?
0: So, Scott, can I ask you a question? Maybe you're going to probably say are <laughs> The kind of man I am is that part of the equation of sharing the gospel, or am I that kind of man? Because yeah. uh, that's what um, power and Holy Spirit and being fully convicted—that's what it makes me. Yeah. I mean,
1: you see what Th- there's only there's only one message when you when you preach to them. You don't preach Jesus Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins. Repent and believe. And by the way, I'm a man of power, and I have the Holy Spirit. And I'm convinced. That's not a part of the message. You're just, that's the messenger. There's the message of power, and there's the messenger that brings it. In 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2, Paul is concerned, not so much in these two chapters, to lay out a clear, thorough, detailed description of the gospel message. He's concerned that they understand the kind of gospel messenger that comes with it. Not instead of it. The messenger does not replace the message. Put it in its right place. Hear me rightly here. But Paul is putting emphasis on the messengers, on the ministry that brings that gospel. So you just be that man. Don't draw any attention to it. Just be that guy. And that's what it's about as you preach the gospel.
0: This is partially due to the fact that he's read he knows he's concerned about them because of how they left. Uh, them and and there there was persecution there and they're they're encountering this stuff yeah. and so he's he's encouraging them right is, is, by telling them you know what kind of men we yeah. were like, uh, we brought you this message it wasn't like oh we just brought you some yeah. this message and we were we didn't really have conviction about it right so
1: there's um, th- that that's a good point um, think if you had three weeks on the short end five six on the long end. um he has to grab for the things that they would have experienced and known or heard. And he says that over and over, just as you know. You, you know what kind of men we proved. And so he draws on what they could remember, and one of the best things they could remember was what kind of men they were. What kind of a man Paul and Silas were, what kind of gospel servants were they? And that was what he was going to draw on, and that was a part of how, what God used to save them messengers are not the gospel okay we are not the gospel I want to Amen. nobody walks out of here saying Maxwell said today that there's the gospel but we also need to be that God saves through us that's not what's being said here do you understand that okay um, but the messenger does matter okay we'll say it back again the other way let's not pretend that all you have to, you can be any kind of a jerk you can be you don't have to be disciplined about your life. As long as you lay the gospel of power out in front of sinners. Now, that, that's okay. Now, what if that happens? What if you're serving along and, you know, somebody preaches Christ out of selfish ambition? What do you do? You become the, the, the morality police? What did Paul say in Philippians? You know, I rejoice that Christ is preached. But Paul says here, What he says in Philippians 1 does not erase what he says in 1 Thessalonians 1. And what he says in 1 Thessalonians 1 doesn't erase what he says in Philippians 1. They both have to stand together. So Paul says, look, if if Christ is going to be preached and I can't control it, and these are not my men that I sent out, Christ is proclaimed. But let's not pretend that statement means it doesn't matter what kind of men you are, because in 1 Thessalonians 1 he says it does matter what kind of men you are. Okay? All right.
0: Scott, when he says... They became imitators. Yeah. Does, does that mean that they became, they then became the messengers? Yeah. So when he says later, you became an example to yeah. believers in Macedonia and okay. Achaia, Does that mean that they went out then yeah. as?
1: Yeah. It, I'll, I'll, that's perfect. Um, we're ready to move on to number two. That's exactly the second point. So number two, gospel ministry makes word-driven imitation and exemplary living possible. That is exactly the point. Look at verse six. You also, so I have something to add. You also, okay, so the gospel came to you in words, but not only in words, but it came with a ministry of power as well and also something else. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word. So what made that imitation possible? They received the word of God. Uh, Paul says over in chapter two that you received it for what it is. Where is that verse? Um, I'm going to find it no um, 13. that's it. this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the Word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men but for what it really is, the Word of God. and what does the Word of God do? It performs its work in you who believe. that word they received changed them and they became imitators. imitators of who whom? Who did they imitate? Paul says, "Paul and the Lord. So Paul, uh, to imitate Paul was to, in a sense, imitate Christ. He said that in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Uh, imitate me, uh, follow me as I follow Christ, right? Paul lived his life in alignment with Christ such that when you looked at Paul, you didn't get all of Christ, but you saw what Christ was like, and if you imitated Paul, you wouldn't be doing something contrary to what Jesus wanted. That's a great thing just to think on there and be that kind of man, okay? Okay. Um, notice their imitation was not affected by tribulation. Verse 6, uh, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation. You know that tribulation. How did they receive it? You remember what happened in back in Thessalonica. They were Many of them were dragged outside uh, to the city officials and were persecuted. And this is the most accurate picture, really, um, of what gospel ministry looks like in the world. Think about where we live, Guy. Guys, there's a there's tribulation all over where uh, the gospel is preached. Why? Because this whole world is in rebellion against God. When He came the first time in Christ, they killed Him, and if He came again, they would try to do it again. We live among those kinds of rebels. But what God did is in the grace of the of the gospel by the power of the gospel we defected from that rebellion in repentance and we believed. and what jesus didn't do is he didn't extract us right away and take us to heaven with him but he said stay behind enemy lines and so we were former children of wrath we live among the sons of disobedience who every day in their living are plotting the death of god if he comes and he says proclaim to them that that right now there's a pardon There's a pardon that the king who's coming, he's going to come, he's going to obliterate you all, but he's offering a pardon to you now. Believe him and you will be spared. That message isn't liked. It just isn't liked. We're offering a pardon to the ones who want to kill Jesus. We're not selling ice cream sandwiches in Disneyland on a hot summer day. Nobody's going to hate you if you do that. Right? Right? But we are telling people, you're actually in rebellion, and the king's coming, and he is going to crush you, but there's a pardon. Believe him. Repent. And there are many. Some will join. A large number of others will join. Even some of the leading people of the city might come, but there's going to be a lot who aren't going to like that. So we receive the word in tribulation. We just live in a day where it hasn't been that way as much, but it's changing, isn't it? Read your Bible. Read these pages because these days are coming, and they prepare you for it. So, there's a lot of tribulation. But notice that tribulation didn't quench imitation. They imitated Christ, they imitated Paul, a godly example, and that tribulation didn't quench it. And notice that that tribulation also didn't quench joy. You receive the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Um, The Spirit's joy in them was plentiful while they were under tribulation. Look, I have my version of joy. And you have your version of joy. And I can tell you with my version of joy that when trouble and affliction comes into my life, my joy evaporates. But not the Spirit's joy. Jesus said, I give you my joy and no one will take it away from you. Right? Nobody can take it. So they imitated and they, verse 7, did this such that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Macedonia is the province that Philippi is in and Thessalonica is in. Achaia is the southern province below that where Corinth was and where Athens was. And so by the time Paul gets to wherever he gets and he's writing back to them, um, it's already been trumpeted forth to them, okay? So they became imitators. Listen, this is what gospel ministry is after. You're after people changing their, having their lives be changed by the power of the gospel. It's not just fire insurance. You know this, right? But your life actually changes. You become a new creature in Christ, and then there are godly examples that get set before the body. Moms and dads and spiritual leaders and things like that. And you imitate that person. Your life must change. But not only do you imitate, but you also yourself become what? An example. How long was he with them? Three weeks. to so Six weeks? And they are examples already. Yeah. In, behind enemy lines, somebody saved three weeks. It's a great example to the rest of the rebels. You don't have to wait three years. You don't have to go through and get some kind of a, of a Bible degree to be an example. You just get saved, and you start imitating, and you become an example to those around and to other other, other believers. So think about what Paul has said here. Um, God has made sovereign choices long ago before the foundation of the world, right? The gospel comes in power, and a gospel ministry of power, a gospel ministry full of the Spirit, a gospel ministry full of conviction comes, preaches that gospel. God shines his light on the elect through faith and repentance. They defect, they believe, they defect from the world, they believe Christ, they receive the word, and tribulation comes. That's Thessalonica. Tribulation comes, but their lives change, and they imitate Paul, and they become exemplary in the way that they live, and they have joy that can't be taken away. That's what happens. And that's what gospel ministry is about. It makes word driven imitation and exemplary living possible. Number three, gospel ministry expands quickly and extensively through new believers. Look at verse eight. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in your province, or like for us, in your state you live in, and have the state next to you, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth. To this extent that we have no need to say anything. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul being brought to a place where he didn't have anything to add? I, upon hearing, he goes someplace and, he, and it's already been there that the Thessalonians believed. And Paul goes, well, I, I, don't, I don't have anything to add. That's profound that Paul doesn't have anything to add. That's what he's saying. Uh, he says, in verse 8, the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. That idea of sounding forth is like a trumpet blast. Um, the trumpet, I, I played it for 14 years of my life. The trumpet is not an instrument to play if you're shy and don't want to be noticed. <laughs> okay? Um, this is not sign language. The gospel is not going out through sign language. It's through something quiet that you have to be looking at to be able to see it. But it goes forth like a trumpet blast. It doesn't matter where you're looking where you're standing you know it and that's the way that it is likened here so yes the word of God went forth from them but the word probably spread rapidly um, Nate rather than it's them leaving and traveling about mm. okay um, nothing to say Paul says the gospel took full advantage of the zeal and the proximity of new believers to their surrounding lost world this is a great strategy. If you lead at, at work, you're surrounded by unbelievers, and you uh, come across a brand new believer, or God in his grace gives you the privilege of being able to leave somebody to Christ, one of the first things you should do with that new believer is have them tell everybody they know. Because at that moment, the only people in that person's life are other unbelievers. Because the older you get in Christ, the more mature you get in Christ, the, it tends, tends, not always, that you are more and more and more surrounded by mostly believers and not unbelievers. So one of the best strategies in evangelism is when you, uh, if you disciple somebody who's a brand new be- uh, believer, get them to invite their friends and read the Bible with them. Okay, um, Gospel ministry expands quickly, and extensively through new believers, like a trumpet blast. I've done this before with high school kids. When a high school kid gets saved, I say, invite as many friends to your house Thursday night, 8 o'clock, we're going to read the Gospel of Mark. And it's been amazing. College students, it's, it's great. You're at work, wherever you're at. It's a, it's a, it's a wise way to go about evangelism. Gospel ministry expands quickly and extensively through new believers. Number four, gospel ministry labors for nothing short of repentance. Verse nine, for they themselves, these other believers who have already heard about this that we've bumped into, they themselves report about us two things. Verse nine, number one, what kind of reception we had with you or what kind of a welcoming we had with you. And number two, they report how you turned to God from idols, repentance. So there's this report that's already been blasted forth, and here are the two things that are being said. Now notice the two things again. One is repentance, but the first one he mentions is the way that you guys just welcomed us into your life. That's gone forth too. So what's Paul making an emphasis on again? It matters the kind of men you are and the kinds of relationships that you form with people in the gospel. That is not the gospel. That does not substitute for the gospel, but let's not pretend like that doesn't matter. Like you can be a jerk as long as they got the gospel. They don't have to like you, but they believe now and it's okay. We want to be the right kind of men who can be welcomed into a life. They were welcomed in a way that God used to bring about repentance So what stood out in the report was what kind of welcoming Paul got as a gospel minister, and secondly, how they repented. Those two things are inseparable. Okay? Why do you want the first? Why do you want to be received by a sinner? Because you want them to repent. That's why. Why do we want the Doe people, why do we want them to receive the Dodds, the Mitchells, and the Cans? Why? Because we want them to what? Repent. What if they receive the Cans and the Mitchells and never repent? Are we happy? No. We're not satisfied until there is repentance. So you want the first to get the second. If you get the first without the second, you're unsatisfied. You labor for nothing short of repentance. What if you're welcomed, but they... Let me me push this into your own home. Can I do that? What if you're welcomed by a child in your house? They receive you, they love you, but they have not repented yet. What do you do? Are you happy with that? No, that'll keep you up at night. Every night, praying. And you keep praying. Because you labor for nothing short of repentance. Now, there is a a ministry methodology everywhere across this land we live in that is primarily concerned to do ministry in such a way that sinners come and they welcome the believers. They come into the church and and they go, wow, this is great. These, these these believers are so welcoming. This church is so friendly. And whether or not those people actually repent, I, I, I don't know. What do you think of a ministry methodology that wants sinners to receive and interact with believers, but whether or not the emphasis is on that they ever repent or even told that they need to repent? You have to be really careful about that. Um, That is not a satisfying way to do ministry. You should not conduct your family that way. You should not conduct your ministry anywhere else that way. So in gospel ministry, labor for nothing short of repentance. If they don't receive you, there may not be another chance for them to repent until somebody else with the gospel comes. But if they receive you and they do not yet repent, you must remain unsatisfied, brokenhearted, and keep laboring until they do if that would be what God would do. You can't make them repent, but you do have something to play in whether or not they receive you. So don't be a jerk. Love them, right? Be like Paul. Number five, we'll look at that here in a moment. Number five, gospel ministry must result in a desire for God above all else. I love this in verse nine. Um, They reported how you turn to God from idols, right here, to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his son from heaven. To serve the living and true father, and to wait for his son from heaven. So the orientation, repentance was, I I had idols over here that I was pursuing in my life, and I turned, and instead now, a father and a son. A father and a son. I, I serve the father, and I wait for the son. Okay, so the focus here is... I was after idols, and now I want a triune person. In gospel ministry, you want to make sure that what people primarily understand that they get in the gospel is a person, a being, a triune being. Not just religious activity or a new church. But when people repent, they get God, as Piper would say, right? So, if somebody were to ask you today, "So, what are you about as a Christian?" Here would be an answer: um, I serve the Father and I wait for the Son. That's where I am. I, I I love my Father and I can't wait to see the Son. That's what I want. It's about a person. So, gospel ministry needs to result in a desire for God above all else. Yeah, please
0: another type
1: of ministry or is that for emphasis? Uh, that's for emphasis. No, there is no other kind of ministry, but you and I both know that there are other people who call what they do ministries. Right. And so we're just making it clear that there is only one kind of ministry. Okay. Gospel ministry. Yeah. Um, that's good clarification. That's good for sure. And and to to be to be to be fair and to be honest even with ourselves, is that Just because we're here and we're around Christians doesn't even guarantee that we're doing gospel ministry. It's a a discipline, Mm -hmm. right? So um, just because we're Christians and we get together doesn't mean that gospel ministry automatically is going on. We have to like read these kinds of things, and we have to discipline ourselves to make sure that we're doing them so that it is gospel ministry, and there is no other kind of ministry to do. Absolutely right. Is
0: that... What it means to serve a living and true God? Yeah. Or is that
1: all something else? That that serve there is probably the idea of the Old Testament idea of serving that is worship. It's it's a it's a service that is a worship of the Father. Um, so it is a an orientation towards one triune being, while we can't wait to see the other triune being, all while the third triune being is in us. Okay. who is this jesus look how he's described his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead that is jesus he is the one who rescues us from the wrath to come now i don't know if in your mind you have some kind of a nebulous idea of of wrath or maybe it's eternal wrath in in hell and that is certainly the case But Paul here is talking about the expression of the wrath that is to come, probably the wrath that will come when Jesus comes and sets up his kingdom and he obliterates the unbelievers. Um, That wrath that is coming, that Jesus will bring, that is the wrath that when he went to the cross and God poured out on him wrath, it included that. And so you're not just saved from wrath and some nebulous kind of thing, but there is a wrath that actually will come on the earth one day. And when Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago, he rescued us from that wrath to come. We will, as believers, this is for free, uh, this is the doctrine of our church, we will be raptured with Christ, we will be with him, and when he comes back before his kingdom and we come with him in resurrected bodies, we will be on earth and he will empty out his wrath and we will be there and we will be rescued from it so when Jesus died he rescued us from that wrath he rescued us from the lake of fire he rescues us from all wrath but there is a wrath that is coming gospel ministry does that it orients us towards that one of course we wait for him to come we want him to come we want him to get his due right number six gospel ministry doesn't lose courage in the face of opposition chapter two for you yourselves know brethren that our coming to you was not in vain it wasn't a waste but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi as you know because he told them about it we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition think about it he got was beaten with rods to the point where his skin would have split open as it swelled from the stripes from the rods got on a horse rode for three days not to the hospital but to do it again do it again. And he did that over and over and over and over and over. This, this man is the kind of man that we need to be like. So you go to your, you go to your kids, you go to a spouse, you go to a coworker and you get rejected a little bit and you put your tail between your legs and you go back to your cubicle. No, no, we, we, we have gospel courage. We don't lose courage in the face of opposition. Um, Sometimes when you get opposition, I listened to my son yesterday um, tell me on the, on the way home from school about um, he's got this big group of friends at school, at, at a Christian school, and um, there's been kind of a falling out among them. And we've been trying to scratch, we scratched our head a little bit like, well, what, what's behind all that? And of course, you know, that only trickles out over time. And what came out yesterday was that there's this big theological divide between this group of friends. And that has caused some of them to not want to hang out together very much anymore. And, um, and when he told me the doctrinal things that it was about, and I was like, oh, son, okay. You, you, but you just love those people. You tell them, you, you're my friend, and I, I love you. And um, you, my, my concern was not by anything that he said, but I'm, I'm imagining high school kids debating around, batting a beach ball around called predestination hitting it like it's a beach ball, like it's this thing we can just kind of play with. And um, the point is, um, you can create opposition by batting around things you shouldn't bat around. So there may be opposition sometimes in your ministry because of the way you went about it, and it's not the right way to do it, okay? So you need to be able to assess, okay, why is this opposition occurring? Have I been the wrong kind of person in this? Have I talked about these things in ways that are not helpful? Um, but there are other times, and Paul is a great example of this, that um, the opposition is proof that you did what was right and you said what was right. And it requires a little nuance of wisdom there to be able mm-hmm. to discern, why am I being opposed right now? And it might even be worth asking, am I the the offense here? Um mm-hmm. Or is this truth offensive? Um, so don't lose courage in the face of opposition, but measure opposition the right way in your life. Number seven. Um, I'm going to kind of go a little bit quicker through this. Must uh, Gospel ministry must flow from the truth and from pure motives. Verse three. For our exhortation does not come, our gospel exhortation to you guys did not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. Uh, the way that I think about this is like um there is the faucet that is the source of the water, and then there's the hose through which the water comes. Okay, so what do you want? You need to make sure that the source is pure. And you need to make sure that the the the, the instrument through which it comes is pure. And that's what Paul is saying. Our our exhortation in the gospel, contextually, I think that's what he means here, it didn't come from a source of error, or a source of impurity. And it didn't come through a means of deceit. Um, Paul is making an emphasis here that the gospel comes from truth. It comes from purity. It is truth. It is purity. And I wasn't an obstacle as a hose through which that traveled. Again, what is the emphasis on? The kind of men that we need to be in the midst of this. So you need to think of the source And you need to think of yourself as a pure vessel through which that source comes, okay? Number eight, gospel ministry concerns itself with God's approval alone. Uh, Just notice these kinds of statements, verse four, just as we have been approved by God, that means tested by God to be entrusted with the gospel. I, I say it this way, Paul was tested to be entrusted with the gospel, That's what God does. That's what Paul was concerned about. God needs to test me to entrust me. I don't care what other people think. Uh, Verse, the next verse there, uh, we don't want to be pleasing to men, but pleasing to God who examines our hearts. So he's the one who tests us. He's the one who examines me from the inside out. I want to be pleasing to him. Uh, The next verse, God is witness. God's watching me. This is the emphasis that Paul is, is, is concerned about. Um, Yes, he wanted to be received by them. Yes, he cares what they think about him. That's what he's writing. I want to, I want to remind you what kind of men we prove to be among you. He's concerned about that, but ultimately he's not concerned about that. God is watching. God is the witness. God is the one who examines his heart. God is the one that he wants to please. God is the one who tests him to entrust him with the gospel. Does that make sense? Your ministry, first and foremost, guys, if you operate under the fear of man... It brings a snare and you will be trapped in it and your ministry will be hampered by it and you will be dragging around a a big old claw that clamped on your ankle and you'll be dragging that through ministry because you're afraid of what people think. You're afraid of whether or not you've pleased them. You're You're concerned that they're the witnesses watching you. Yeah, put that in its right place. Ultimately, you are concerned to please God with your ministry. I'll just read you the last three. Uh, Men, you need to value gentleness. We prove to be gentle among you like a nursing mother. Guys, um, be more and more and more and more persuaded that uh, gentleness is something you need to know how to do. Guys uh, struggle with that a lot more than the women do. They have no trouble sitting and listening and comforting and crying and nurturing and doing that, um, you need to get that tool on your belt. Uh, you need to know how to do that. Paul was able to be gentle like a, a mother. He was able to exhort like a father. Um, be present. Be near. Comfort. Um, meet needs. Don't do it in a loud, abrupt way. Don't get bugged because they're, they're still crying. Why are you still crying? Um, okay. You laugh. Um, but one of the, th- the ways that elders oftentimes ex- exhort and disciple husbands here and counsel husbands and fathers is stop doing that. I know you have no empathy anywhere in your lo- uh, any bone in your body, but you need to find it and and sit with your child, sit with your wife, sit with your friend, and comfort them first. Listen and then listen some more. Ten. Gospel blends gospel proclamation and um, selfless love. I love verse 8. We have so fond of affection for you, uh, but we imparted to you not only the gospel of God, but our lives. Um, We love you. We had a fond affection for you. We gave our life to you. In the midst of that, we also gave you the gospel. So then again, Paul is marrying these things together, not just the gospel, but the gospel messenger matters. Verse 9 is the same way. He didn't labor among them in a way that uh, required them to pay and, and meet his needs financially. He got that from Philippi. He didn't need it from them. So it blends gospel proclamation and selfless love. And then lastly, it just requires excellent behavior from all. Guys, if you ever hear of a gospel ministry that is concerned that you, um, and it has all the right doctrine in regards to the justification by faith alone, um, by grace alone if it has all that that's great but you don't have to change you run from that it is a false gospel look what Paul says as we finish up here Um, you are witnesses verse 10 and so is God how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers so he's drawing their memory back to that just as you know how we were exhorting encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own son that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory so what is the gospel ministry concerned with it is concerned with we behave devoutly uprightly and blamelessly and we expect you to walk in a manner worthy I have to live the right way, and you have to live the right way. Not so that we can be saved, but because we are saved and have been changed. Okay, Gospel ministry concerns itself with excellent behavior. Not because we have lost grace and we are moving away from uh, salvation by grace to a works-oriented salvation that is foolishness. Um, You don't pit those things against one another. You believe uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and you are righteous in in God's declaration over you. You are once and for all sanctified, and you must now live an excellent life in excellent behavior. You must flee from a gospel that does that, okay? Or that goes against that, I should say. All right. So there you have it. 11 marks of gospel ministry let's close our time in prayer father in heaven we thank you for this um, autobiographical section of paul i wish lord we had more time to cover it and i pray god that these men would soak in this passage i pray that you would bless their pursuit of you in your word and in prayer um, when no one else is watching lord i pray that they would realize what they are there is what they are And, Lord, I pray that you would bless their pursuit of their friends and household and roommates or whoever. um, That, Lord, they would discipline themselves there. And I pray, God, that you would give them fruitful ministry when they step into your church and they um, bless others with the gospel. Lord, make us more like the Apostle Paul. Help us to imitate him. Thank you for his godly example captured for us in Scripture. Thank you most of all for your son who is the one that we are to imitate. And we love you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys.